We turn to God's word this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read this in connection with Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read this entire chapter, Ephesians chapter 2. And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off, and to them that were nigh. For through him... We both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Thus far we read God's holy and inspired word. It's on the basis of this passage in Scripture and others like it that we have the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, 
in Lord's Day 7. Lord's Day 7 of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question 20 asks, Are all men then as they perished in Adam saved by Christ? No. Only those who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also an assured confidence, which the Holy Ghost works by the gospel in my heart, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God, merely of grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. What is then necessary for a Christian to believe? All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. And then what are those articles? And we'll confess those articles this afternoon in the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. Beloved congregation, In our Lord Jesus Christ, having set forth the doctrine of the mediator in last Lord's Day, Lord's Day 6, the catechism now recognizes that some people might have the wrong conception of this mediator. Perhaps even that he's the mediator of all men. And so here in Lord's Day 7, the question is, are all men then as they perished in Adam saved by Christ, who is this mediator. And you understand that's the hope of so many people in this world. That's the hope of even so many in the church world today. And they say, yes, Christ died and made salvation possible for all men. And that's the teaching of Arminianism, so that now the burden is on you to reach out and accept that salvation, or at least do not resist the grace of that God offers. But then even some go a step further and they say that that Christ will in fact save all men and bring all men to heaven because after all it would not be loving for a God to send some people to hell. And that's you recognize the false teaching of universal atonement. But the Heidelberg Catechism here gives the right answer to the question, are all men saved by the mediator? And the answer is a resounding no. Not all men are saved. And we know from the rest of Scripture that not even a majority of the human race is saved. Only a remnant, only a very small portion of the entire human race is saved, even though that remnant, that small portion, is a, is a great multitude in and of themselves. But here the Reformed faith in Lord's Day 7 is very clear, making sure that we have nothing to do with that false doctrine of Arminianism and universal salvation as it relates 
to the mediator who saves his people. But then the next question is, but then of those who are saved by the mediator, of those who are saved by Christ, what's true of them? And the answer is, well, what's true of them is that they are saved. They're saved by faith. Only those are saved who are engrafted into him and receive all his benefits by a true faith. And that's something that so many people in the world today, they would acknowledge that there is such a thing, uh, a thing called faith. But when you press people as to what exactly is faith and what constitutes true faith, then you're going to get a whole range of different answers. The world talks about faith. The world presents it this way. You, you just got to have faith. And you have to be upbeat. And you have to be positive. And you have to have a, an optimistic outlook on whatever life has in store for you. That Then you've got pretty good faith. Well, that's not faith. The nominal Christian church, too, talks about faith. A faith along these lines that you've got to believe that something will happen. If you really believe it in your heart, then you've got faith. Never mind whether it actually happens or not. Faith supposedly is believing the unbelievable. That you can be cured of your disease. That you can become rich and prosperous in life. And your life will become easy. If only you believe it, then, then that's supposedly faith. But we understand that that's not faith. That's, that's not the essence of faith. Although we readily confess that, yes, faith involves confidence, as the Catechism says, that faith is an assured confidence, but that confidence arises not out of wishful thinking, not out of things that I hope will happen, but I'm not sure, but this is a confidence that's tied directly to the word of God. A confidence that's tied directly to the promises of God so that what God promises you, you may believe and you may be absolutely sure and confident that what God promises will come to pass. That is faith. Another issue regarding faith that's answered in this Lord's Day is the question, well, where does, where does the faith that God gives you and me, where does it come from? Where does it originate? Does that faith arise out of me? Is it something that I must produce? Is it something that, that I must work and bring it to pass? And we know the answer to that question, no, not that. And even the passage that we read in Ephesians 2, we find that faith always finds its source in God. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that, that grace and that faith is not of you, it's not of me, but it is the gift of God. 
Well, let's consider this Lord's Day under the theme, the faith of every believer. Let's note first what we believe. Secondly, where this faith comes from. And finally, how we show it. The faith of every believer. Now, there are two different ways that the Heidelberg Catechism sets forth the truth of faith. The first way is this, that faith is a bond. And that's what we have in this first question and answer. The Catechism states that those only who are saved are those who are engrafted into him, into Jesus Christ, and receive all his benefits by a true faith. And so faith, first of all, then, is a bond. And that bond unites us to Jesus Christ. By nature, you and I are not part of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that God didn't choose us in Jesus Christ. I'm not speaking about it from the point of view of God's eternal decree, but I mean you and I as born members of the human race, corrupt and dead in Adam, as the Catechism has already made clear in the opening Lord's days. But God in his grace and mercy now takes us out of the tree of Adam, as it were, and puts us into the good tree of Jesus Christ. And the life of Jesus Christ becomes ours and all the benefits of salvation that he has earned for us flow unto us. But now that graft whereby we are united to our Lord and Savior, that is the bond of faith. But that's not so much the emphasis of the Heidelberg Catechism here in this Lord's Day to draw out all of that truth that's involved in the fact that faith is a bond, but rather the Catechism focuses on the activity of faith. Speaking of all the various ways then that faith comes to expression in your life and in mine. And now here it's good for us to pause for a bit and to realize that those two aspects of faith, that faith is a bond and that faith is an activity, that those are not two things that are diametrically opposed one to another. Because yes, from the point of view from the point of view that faith is that bond that unites us to Jesus Christ, then, then, then we are comfortable and we say, yes, faith from that point of view is passive. It's what unites us to Jesus Christ so that his life flows to us, so that we may receive all of the blessings of salvation he's merited for us. We don't unite ourselves to Jesus Christ. We don't even keep ourselves united to Jesus Christ. In that sense, yes, faith is passive. And then this too, from the point of view that faith is an activity, then we say, yes, faith is active. We embrace Jesus Christ. We believe in him. We appropriate him and all his benefits. By faith, we know our Lord and Savior in faith, we are confident that salvation is not only for others, but that salvation is confident for me as well. 
and all those very active words concerning faith do not somehow make faith a kind of work that we perform, a kind of merit that we offer unto God? Absolutely not. Because the fact of the matter is that God makes us willing. That's Psalm 110. God makes us willing in the day of his power. And then Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13, to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And that means then that when we are active in the exercise of faith, that all the glory goes to God. And therefore, we are not shy and we are not hesitant to use those very active words when we speak about faith because those very active words concerning faith are not meritorious, but they are always and everywhere gracious. So that faith is a bond and faith is an activity and we don't minimize or disparage one to emphasize another. And we don't overreact by emphasizing one at the expense of the other. Well, the Heidelberg Catechism here in Lord's Day 7 teaches us concerning faith and without denying in the least that faith is at a bond, it focuses though on the activity of faith. So that Christ our mediator has earned for us all of the blessings of salvation and one of those blessings is the blessing of faith. And the catechism asks, what is true faith? And the answer, in answer 21, true faith is a certain knowledge, and let's do this one first, a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed in his word. And we say, well, what has God revealed to us in his word that we ought to know? And that's what answer 22 points us to. All things promised us in the gospel, which the articles of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith briefly teach us. So that the articles of the Apostles' Creed, in summary form, sets forth what is to be the object and therefore the content of our knowledge. And you understand that the catechism in bringing up the articles in the Apostles' Creed as necessary to believe, not, not so that all you need is the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed, and you can, you can set aside the rest of Scripture, not that, but the Apostles' Creed as it condenses all of the doctrines really of the Bible and all of Scripture into those 12 articles of faith setting forth Jehovah as the triune God. And so that's the line that the Apostles' Creed teaches us. I believe in God the Father. I believe in his Son, Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, and all that Scripture teaches us concerning God then is summarized there 
in the Apostles' Creed. And when God reveals himself to us in the scriptures, then we as God's children declare, I know God. That's what faith says. Faith is that certain knowledge. I know God. We don't know God exhaustively. We cannot comprehend the full being of God, but we have a knowledge whereby we take hold of God's word, we read God's word, and we say, I know what this means. It's not some enigma. It's not some riddle that forever escapes me. But I understand that God created all things in the beginning by the word of his power. Little children understand those things. Faith says, I understand and I grasp the meaning of so many types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith says, I understand that the Son of God became flesh that he died on the cross of Calvary for my sins, crucified, dead and buried. I understand and I know that on the third day he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, that he sits at God's right hand, and that there comes the time again when he will judge the living and the dead. Faith is that knowledge of all that God has revealed in his word and then declaring And it's all true, every bit of it, no lies, no deception, that the word of God is true, and I know it, and I believe it. Now, when we say that faith holds for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, then we are taking a certain stand against the common notion nowadays, the common notion that goes along these lines that you can reduce faith to a few things that you can pick and choose some of those things out of the Bible that you want to believe and then set the rest aside. For example, that you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God without believing that he is at the same time true and living God, believing that God is Father, but that it doesn't matter if you believe that Jesus Christ is his only begotten Son, believing the miracles of the Bible, but then saying, but they're only there to make the story interesting. We don't need to take them literally, so it goes. By saying that we believe All that God has revealed to us is truth. We are saying that there is nothing that we will set aside. There is nothing that we will dismiss. And that prompts us then to study the Bible more and more. All of it. Because it holds depths of riches that we don't fully understand, but it makes us emulate the Bereans who are constantly searching the scriptures because the Bible was the content of their faith. 
searching the scriptures because they knew that God was right and true and holy in all his ways and never lies in the promises that he gives. And so people of God, would you, would you like to grow in your faith and to grow in your knowledge of all that God has revealed to you in his word? The answer is then you must be busy in loving God's word and in studying God's word. True faith is a certain knowledge of all that God has revealed in his word. A knowledge that says, and I will not be persuaded otherwise, what God says is true. That's the first aspect of faith, that certain knowledge. But then secondly, true faith is not only a a certain knowledge, but then also an assured confidence. The catechism explains what that confidence is. I am confident that salvation is for me through Jesus Christ alone. I'm confident that what God says is true concerning my salvation. I'm confident that what Ephesians 2 verse 13 says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. And I'm confident in that. That's not a lie. I'm confident that that's not a deception. Faith says what God's word says is true. And I believe it. And faith also says that I'm confident that all of this is true for me personally. As the Catechism points out, that not only to others, but to me also, remission of sin, righteousness and salvation are freely given by God. And this faith, which is this confidence and this conviction, this rests upon absolute truth. What do I mean by that? I mean by that this, at least from a negative point of view, that as Christians, we have such great faith, we have such great confidence, not because this is some wishful thinking on our part, so that if only we believe it hard enough, We can convince ourselves that it's true. No, not that. Not either am I confident because my feelings tell me so. Our confidence is not based upon our feelings. Our confidence isn't either that God will will make my life easy and will make my life pleasant. If, If only I show myself to be a Christian more and more, That's not the confidence of faith. If that's the confidence of faith, then what of so many of God's people in the past who suffered in such horrible and cruel ways, who were crucified, who were tortured, who were burned at the stake, who were fed to the wild animals, if that is what confidence is, that God will somehow make my life easy, then I suppose that many of God's people in the past were deceived in, uh, in life who suffered great things. 
All of which means to say that really to be confident in something that God hasn't promised is a very foolish thing. But on the contrary, the confidence of faith is tied directly to the word of God and to the promises of God. So that, for example, in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. And the confidence of faith says it's because God Almighty says it and his word is true and because God is truth and cannot lie that therefore what he says has to be true and I believe it. That confidence of faith goes on further that God will deliver us from all of our enemies because God's word says so. The promises of God state so, that God will deliver us from the great enemy of sin and from all of the wiles of the devil. We are assured that God will preserve me in this life and bring me to my heavenly home and that nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus the Lord because that's what God's word says. The assurance and the confidence of faith says, God loves me. He loves me in Jesus Christ, never to leave me, never to forsake me. And that confidence of faith is able to endure many a trial in life. God sends those trials and difficulties, of course. He sends them to to strengthen our faith, not to shatter our faith. Not to cause us to despair and doubt. But it's that very faith which God gives which leads us out of those trials. The conviction that God sends those trials in his love for his people. The opposite of this certainty, which every child of God must guard against, the opposite of the confidence of faith is doubt. Doubt is a lack of confidence in Jehovah God. Doubt questions. And it questions not necessarily whether what the Bible says is true, but whether this salvation is for me personally. And some of God's people do struggle with doubts, And with fears, perhaps to a greater or lesser degree, every child of God at at some point in time has those experiences. But at bottom, doubt is looking away from Jesus Christ. And one might say, well, yes, he's the Savior. He saves the church. But then salvation can, but could that salvation be for me? I can hardly believe it. I'm too great a sinner. Or even doubt goes along these lines that somebody says, 
I look at all of the circumstances in my life, and if God loves me, then why do I have these troubles? Or a person looks for evidences of God's love in ways that he or she shouldn't be doing. So that somebody says, well, if God loves me, then, then God should, should do this in my life. And if God doesn't do this and work in a miraculous way in my life, then I, I, I don't know. And I can't have that confidence. But you see, all of those things lead to doubt. The conviction of faith, however comes in the way of turning to scripture and saying, apart from my feelings, apart from my circumstances, look at the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at what the Lord Jesus Christ did for sinners. And I know that I am a sinner and I need the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of the gospel is that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so people of God, do not rely upon the arm of man to save. Do not look to the wisdom of the world to save you. And do not look even to your own feelings or experiences to give you guidance as to whether or not you have faith or not. But believe in him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him. And then you can say, I am saved by grace through faith. Well, that's what faith is. It's a certain knowledge and an assured confidence. But now the word of God tells us where this faith comes from. Where does it originate? Does God tell man, this is something that I leave up to you? This is something that you have to accomplish all on your own, this faith and this believing. The one who believes in Arminian theology says, well, well, yeah, that's true. Man has that small capability to believe all by himself and at least not to resist the grace that God would offer to him. And when God offers the promises of the gospel, then man has to take the initiative and believe that gospel altogether apart from God and his grace. That's the position the Arminians took at the time of the Synod of Dort. But rather, the Reformed believers, you and me, we say that faith finds its source in God. So that even the first instant a person is conscious that he or she has faith, he or she must already say, that's God's work in my heart. And that's evident from scripture, the passage we read, Ephesians chapter 2, speaking about how we are dead in trespasses and sins. And we're very familiar with that example of a dead man is unable to do anything. And then you think of a spiritually dead man. A spiritually dead man is unable to believe the promises of God. 
But God has quickened us. He's made us alive spiritually. And he's the one, therefore, who gives us faith. Faith finds its source in God. And then that, that outstanding passage in Ephesians 2, in verse 8. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Later on in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, reminds us that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith, which means the one who begins it and the one who completes it, ruling out any idea that man begins it and then God steps in, or that God begins it and that man is the one who completes it. No, Jesus begins and completes the work of faith in our hearts. And then also what Jesus says in John 6, verse 44, that no man can come unto me. And Jesus often uses that as a reference to the activity of faith, uh, of coming to him. No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him. And later on, Jesus says to the Jews, ye cannot believe because ye are not of my sheep. Faith finds its source in God. And it's important that we believe that faith has its source in God. For many different reasons in the first place, because then we will give all the glory to God. Because what makes you and me different from the world around us? Are, are, are they worse sinners than us? Is it the case that, that they have committed sins that were too great for Christ to atone for? And the answer is no. But rather this, that God has set us apart in his love. And then in time showed it concretely by regenerating us and giving us faith. So that at the end of the day, we say that I have not made myself to be different. God has given me faith. Give God the glory. But then in the second place, knowing that faith comes from God encourages us to use the means by which God gives and nourishes that faith. And here I refer to the means of grace which is the preaching of the gospel and the, and the use of the sacraments. Because it's no magical act on the part of God how he gives you and me knowledge and confidence. God gives us faith and strengthens that faith through the use of means. Here in church, here in the divine worship services, God gives us that faith. He strengthens that faith so that do you experience at time, people of God, that your, that your faith is weak, that your faith is faltering? God says, I strengthen your faith. I give you faith through the preaching of the gospel. And then I strengthen that faith through the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. And that means, beloved, that to the extent then that a man or a woman 
refuses to come to church to the extent that a person holds himself or herself back from the sacraments, baptism to the Lord's Supper, that's as much for that person to say that I don't need and I don't want my faith to be strengthened. Well, the Canons of Dord in Head 5 makes that, that very same point. Do you want stronger assurance? Then be diligent in the use of the means of grace. Those are the means that God gives to strengthen our faith. And finally, God gives us this faith. It finds its source in God. How do we manifest and show this faith in our lives? What are the concrete ways that we show this knowledge and this confidence in our lives? There are a number of different ways. And the first way is this, that this knowledge and this confidence demonstrates itself in concrete confessions. That is, one who has faith talks about his faith, isn't quiet, doesn't clam up, but he speaks of his God and of his Savior, the Apostles' Creed, being a prime example, we give expression to our faith every Sunday evening with the words of our mouth by confessing the Apostles' Creed. And note how the Apostles' Creed puts the confession into our mouths. I believe. I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, His Son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And we demonstrate our faith in not only in reciting the creed, but as I go about my life, speaking to my neighbor, to my coworker, talking about my faith. That's how faith demonstrates itself. And then you think of you think of the apostles, Peter and John, having been thrown into prison, and now they must answer before the leaders of the Jews. Do not speak any more in the name of this man, of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and the apostles saying, but we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard. Well, that's what faith does. Faith speaks up. I cannot help but speak and confess the wonderful things that Jesus has done for me. In the second place, true faith shows itself in a godly walk in life. That's what we learn from Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So that God gives us this wonderful blessing of faith. Not so that we would sit home all the day, sitting on the couch, twiddling our thumbs. Not that. But God sovereignly gives us faith that we should perform good works as the fruit of our salvation. Good works that God has before ordained that we should walk in them. 
whatever is in accordance with God's law, whatever brings honor and glory to God, be busy demonstrating your faith in that way, whatever you can do to lift up and to encourage the neighbor. So that in general, our calling is to live out our faith every day and every moment. The faith that God gives us is not just something that when you are in trouble and when you are experiencing hard times, you go to your home and you go into the closet and you pray to God and you say, God has strengthened my faith. Yes, during times of trouble, we manifest our faith and we go to God and we pray to him, but our faith is also the power by which we live Sunday through Saturday and every day of the week and all hours in between. It's faith that leads me to say that this over here is right and this is what I will engage in and that this over here I know not to be not in accord with God's law, not with God's word, and I'm going to refrain myself from that. It's my faith that leads me to say I will marry this kind of a person, a person who has the same kind of a faith as me, who confesses the same Lord Jesus Christ as I do. And in all the other aspects of life as well, the fact that we are united to Jesus Christ means that we will bring forth fruit all of our days, and not just a little, In the third place, faith shows itself in prayer. When God gives us faith, he makes us to be a people who are zealous in our prayer to God. Ephesians 2 verse 18 implies prayer at least when it says, For through him, that is Jesus Christ, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father which teaches us that Jesus Christ has opened up the way to the Father. And that access into heaven isn't simply going to be at the moment of our death when we go to heaven, but that access begins right now in our lives because in Jesus Christ, our prayers ascend up into heaven. And God hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. Prayer is an activity of faith. Do you have faith? You say, yes, I do have faith. And then you will pray to your heavenly Father. And finally, uh, faith shows itself in looking up. Not in expecting a better day down here below, but expecting and being confident in that better day to come. And here again, faith, remember, is always tied to the promises of the word of God. Faith says, Jesus Christ is coming. And he's coming soon. And this world is not my home. I'm only a pilgrim and a stranger down here below. I look For that city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, I look up, looking for and anticipating the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith then knows that our trials and our troubles 
will soon be over, that we will be with our Lord in heavenly glory, and therefore the exhortations come to us to wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. But faith is not defeated because of the trials of this life. But faith knows that the trials of this life are used sovereignly by God for our good and that we would always walk as pilgrims and strangers knowing that our Savior comes quickly. And so people of God, let's give demonstration of our faith by confessing the truth, by always seeking the kingdom of heaven and always being fully persuaded that what God has promised in his word he will surely perform. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We thank thee for thy word. Apply it unto our hearts. Give us faith, O God, and strengthen that faith that we would lean upon and rest upon Jesus Christ, seeking all our salvation in him alone and give us that knowledge and that confidence of faith as well, that all the days of our life we may be a people characterized by faith, that others may see us and see that we are different because we do not lust and crave after the things of this earth, but we lust and crave after those things heavenly and uh, looking for and longing for our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive our sins. Bless us in thy mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We sing Psalter number 241.